Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. In this episode, we're going to talk about the state of the intellectual property rights regime and whether it's a boon or a bane for vibrant, transformative innovation. And joining us is uh, our esteemed Professor Robin Feldman, who is one of the leading experts in the complex legal areas of intellectual property, and especially as they relate to health and medicine and artificial intelligence. She's the Arthur J. Goldberg Distinguished Professor of Law, and director of the University of California Law Center. Her current research focuses, apart from um, IPR and the life sciences, on the role of intellectual property in law and technology innovation, artificial intelligence, and data. Welcome, Professor Feldman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure, too. Uh, so today's topic um, is about the intellectual, intellectual property regime. and whether it's been important for innovation or not, and whether it's fit for purpose um, in the future, especially for new technologies. So we will cover what patents are. We will talk about the booming phenomenon of so-called non-practicing entities and uh, how intellectual property applies to new and emerging areas of technology, software, artificial intelligence, and pharmaceuticals. And then finally about uh, some avenues for reform and uh, to, to address some of the main issues that uh, Robin covers in her extensive work on the topic. So part one, an overview, the patents enable innovation. So first, maybe give a brief overview to our listeners what patents are and what the justification, what the justification for them are. Inventions are extremely valuable to society, but they may be easy to copy. Patents exist so inventors will engage in creation and, most important, share those creations with the world. After all, they could keep them secret. The patent bargain is simple. In exchange for the very powerful patent right, the right to exclude others from making, using, or selling your invention, you share the details of your invention with everyone. So, after the patent period ends... That invention can be used freely by the world. But all good things must come to an end, and at the end of the patent period, you're supposed to go back and invent something new. That system is encountering difficulties. Today, companies have become adept at extending and expanding their period of protection, and that is causing problems within the intellectual property rights field and also for innovation itself. Excellent. So, as I understand it, the justification in theory is, A, um, there are not enough incentives for, uh, for innovation because of the risk associated with them. And the patent uh, IPR system provides a framework for diffusing innovation, but also protecting uh, the incumbent and making it more likely that uh, the, the risky investment will pay off. Um, so this is the theory and the justification where the patents work really well. I think most of us think of the pharmaceutical industry um, and uh, the immense funds that they have to invest in, in trial and error. Uh, but where else is the patent system working as it should? The key for patents and innovation is to ensure that the patent protection goes to innovation that are truly innovations, is to ensure that the patents go to innovations that are truly a contribution to society and that they end. Where the patents work well is when they fall on the truly innovative and the patent period is defined with the precision that encourages inventors to go back 
and to keep innovating. That is the patent system at its best. Within a variety of fields, in technology and in life sciences, that system is encountering difficulties, not working out the way it was originally designed, in need of tinkering and some innovation itself. Yes, indeed. In our work with innovation policy, one of the big points we like to make is that innovation policy itself has to be innovative. And the same, of course, goes for goes for the patent system, because many of the basic parameters uh, of a system developed 200 or more years ago um, are, of course, not going to apply to the activities that we see today. So could you give us just an overview of um, what are some of the major downsides and trends and, and controversies? And we can maybe delve a little bit deeper into some of those later. But just for, the, just for the listeners, what are the main issues under discussion today? The risk of being sued for infringement dampens innovation. When companies have to spend exorbitant sums on court battles, they have less to spend on innovation. Consumers always lose when that happens. These types of inappropriate walls and bottlenecks to innovation direct society's creative resources away from building a better mousetrap and toward building a better legal trap. That's not good for society, and that's a problem for innovation. It's important to remember, too, that patents play a critical role in incentivizing innovation, but other approaches can be useful in addition to a robust patent system. The COVID-19 vaccines are an example of science in action, and of government industry cooperation. We have to think of other methods and not ask the patent system to bear more than it can. We have to be careful to make sure that companies within the patent system and within different types of government incentive systems don't take advantage of the public. We saw that even during the pandemic itself. For example, in March of 2020, when COVID-19 was already raging worldwide, the pharmaceutical company Gilead filed for a special form of protection for one of its drugs as a treatment for COVID-19 that gives a seven-year patent for drugs serving tiny populations. Now, uh, COVID-19 was already a full-blown pandemic certainly wasn't treating a tiny population. So when the media picked up the story, the company with egg on its face was forced to relinquish the rights. And you probably remember Theranos. That was the company that claimed it could do oceans of of blood tests (laughs) with a few drops of blood and whose founder, Elizabeth Holmes, is now in jail for criminal fraud. The invention was an entire fraud. And yet somehow Theranos company managed to get patents They sold those patents to a shell company that then, in the middle of the pandemic, sued companies making COVID-19 tests. It's it's mind-boggling. But these are small examples of the problems that are unfortunately proliferating within the patent system today and that are in need of reform. Yes, uh, definitely. And I would would say to that that almost all policies and regulations that we we work with are double-edged swords and we often don't taken off account of, uh, of the trade-offs involved. Uh, but there is a huge discussion out there today. Um, uh, Alex Tabarrok from George Mason University quipped at one point that even the Pope is talking about patents. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what the, what the Pope said, but maybe one of the things um, is uh, the question of, non, um, of non-practicing entities and what's commonly known as patent trolls. But of course, it's it's much more complicated than that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your the insights from your research um, about what NPEs are and uh, what are some of the related phenomena and how can you how can we categorize them? Uh, about a decade ago, the the patent world quietly underwent a change of seismic proportions. In a few short years, a handful of entities amassed vast treasures of patents on an unprecedented scale. To give some sense of the magnitude, 
Um, my research showed that in a little more than five years, the most massive of these accumulated 30,000 to 60,000 patents worldwide, making it the fifth largest patent portfolio of any U.S. company and the 15th largest of any company in the world at one point. Uh, this comes from my work, the, the Giants Among Us. So slowly, information seeped out about these entities, which have been called non-practicing entities because they don't practice the patent. In other words, they don't make anything. They simply accumulate rights and then sue companies that are making products. Probably heard non-practicing entities called patent trolls. Um, that's that's a reference to the child's tale of the three billy goats who have to pay a toll to the troll waiting under the bridge if they want to pass. Um, so these non-practicing entities in in you know in the press and in modern lingo have been called patent trolls, um, and they have absorbed staggering amounts of patent rights. They do operate as a black hole for for innovation. Other research of mine has demonstrated that the licensing that comes from uh, non-practicing entities uh, doesn't actually have any of the indications of supporting innovation in any way. It's simply a tax on innovation that happens. And maybe the best way to describe it is that is is to put it bluntly. The successful aggregator is likely to be the one that frightens the greatest number of companies in the most terrifying way. So when a, a non-practicing entity knocks on your door with a huge bag of patents, the the company um, facing this large uh, uh, non-practicing entity capitulates because the aggregator is the biggest bag of sky on the block. That may not be the type of activity society wishes to encourage. Yes, definitely. And you talk in, in your article, The Giants Among Us, about um, the patent world undergoing a change of seismic proportions. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to overestimate uh, the impact of this phenomenon and, and, and the negative sides. But first of all, um, could you help us understand why this this not happened before? Um, why is this phenomenon growing so fast right now? What 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 triggered it? What kind of circumstances? One of the modern trends within the patent system is that. Patent attorneys and patent practitioners themselves have been endlessly innovative. In other words, companies have figured out how to use patents and the related regulatory regimes to try to extend their monopolies, to expand the power given with a patent so that it reaches a larger area and that lasts for longer. Unfortunately, this is likely not the innovation that society would like to encourage. We would like the innovation to be in the lab, uh, not in the legal department. And of course, once one innovator comes out with an idea, someone comes out with an idea of how to exploit the patent system or the related regulatory regimes, that idea catches on like wildfire and others start to do that. Society must respond with reforms as well. As you mentioned earlier, we in government have to be as nimble as the innovators that we're working with out there and as the innovations that come online. Yes, definitely. And and um, I think a related phenomenon, I don't know if, it, if I heard this from you or from someone else, are the legal contortions that pharmaceutical companies go into to maintain a patent by changing the formula or changing the administration method and then being able to prevent competitors and generics um, generics to come in. Uh, but I just first wanted to take, to, to take a step back and look at the rationale for these, or at least how these MPEs are selling themselves and are also, in fact, as, as you also note, useful in some circumstances. Um, where are they useful? What's the rationale uh, for them, and where does it 
go wrong? Non-practicing entities describe the possibility of helping a small inventor connect to larger companies who might use that idea and put it into practice and also garner return from an invention when they may be too small or not realize that a large company is using their idea. So the patent trolls and non-practicing entities describe themselves as facilitating exchanges between inventors and those who are using the invention. Unfortunately, the research suggests that image is not playing out. Most of the returns are captured by the the patent troll or the non-practicing entity itself. Very little trickles down to the inventor. And on the flip side, the information that is transferred, the the exchange that happens, um, does not appear to spur further innovation or have any of the indicators of playing a positive role in the innovation system. So it's an interesting concept. It simply isn't playing out in any way that supports society. I do think it's important, whether you're thinking of non-practicing entities or whether you are thinking of companies that pile on large numbers of of patents to try to protect their their product and to block off uh, innovation for an extended period of time, These are profit-making companies. They are going to act in the interests of the shareholders and their own company. We cannot expect anything different. So, for example, um, if a pharmaceutical company were to stand up and say, I'm going to lower the price of drugs because it's the right thing to do, that, um, that company executive would probably not have a job the next day. So we, we have to understand the way in which uh, companies operate. The PAT system is intended to be is, is intended to be an innovation. You think of it as if you want rats in the maze to run in a certain direction, you have to locate the cheese in that direction. And in some areas of the patent system right now, the cheese is just poorly located. It's our responsibility to improve the system so that we get the innovation that will benefit society. Yes, definitely. And one of the issues that, that we try to work on and that we try to clarify is um, that whenever you have any kind of regulation with good intent, you're also going to create a lot of opportunities for abusing it. And that's that's in the nature of almost everything that we do. It's very things right. And so you need a process for, for reviewing them and trying to separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. Um, you write a lot about this, and and uh, one of the things you note is that patent trolling is an extraordinarily lucrative but singularly destructive practice, and a majority of lawsuits are filed using this using this strategy. That's a very strong statement. Is that is that actually the case? Is it that singularly destructive? The U.S. patent system has undergone some reforms since that writing that has created some limits on the amount of litigation that is that is filed and the power of that litigation by non-practicing entities. But it is a troubling phenomenon when the legal system within intellectual property rights is dominated so largely by non-productive activity. Goal of both the patent system and the legal system should be to facilitate innovation, and to make sure that those who innovate see the reward for what they have contributed to society. When the legal system and the innovation system are diverted to other types of pursuits, consumers suffer and innovation suffers. The more we spend in the court, the more time, the more resources we spend on non-productive activity, the less we spend on productive activity. Of course, and and, uh, the the smaller the incentive will will be to engage in any type of activity that may involve some kind of infringement here and there, which characterizes a lot of the innovation in, uh, in new technologies and software we talk about uh, in the next segment. There's one quote that you use in your article, The Sound and the Fury, which I used to think it was from Faulkner, but it's actually from Macbeth, a tale full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What, what did you mean by that? My co-author and I, looked at licensing that was happening related to non-practicing entities. And we tried to see whether that licensing actually fostered innovation. Did it have any of the indicia that we see when 
licenses actually result in in innovation because licensing can be very useful you license your invention to someone you give them the right to to use it you give them lots of other information along with it and then new innovation results and society benefits that is the model that that can and does happen in many corners but we found that a massive amount of the licensing going on in the United States patent system was by non-practicing entities and that when that happened there were none of these indicia of uh innovation it was simply a tax on productivity simply dollars going to a middle party with no new innovation uh coming out of it and little indication that that is supporting the original innovators who came up with the idea so we called it the sound and fury signifying nothing yes we were referencing uh macbeth because there's a tremendous amount of activity sound and fury but little innovation that comes out in the end yes and and uh, i think this this relates well to many of the 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 issues uh we are working on and the mistakes that are the basic mistakes that are that are made by simply not understanding or trying to understand how innovation works and 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 how it happens you see many support programs for instance um called technology transfer that support basically the hardware and forget that maybe 99% of the important knowledge is in how to use it and the processes and you also note that a lot of the information that that you would need um uh, to actually use the licensing are actually not in the official in the official documents and hence might not be useful at all so this is a phenomenon that's particularly salient in in new areas with frontier technologies and also new new ways of uh, developing pharmaceuticals uh, which you also worked on um so i would like to talk about how a system designed by designed for let's say steam engines and light bulbs can apply to services and 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 new sectors and how the 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 problem of uh, non-practicing entities of trolls and patent thickets uh, apply in particular to those to those areas so could you first give us a, an overview of what are the three or four main issues and controversies controversies as they relate to activities that simply were not predicted 200 years ago when the concept was um, established so there are three areas uh in which we see different types of innovation in areas where the patent system is not playing out as was originally designed and anticipated one has to do with secondary patenting in the pharmaceutical industry one has to do with software and its role and a third has to do with artificial intelligence and how to handle this uh, exploding area within society as it relates to patents okay so let's let's talk about the first issue you mentioned that of healthcare now from me as a layman in this area uh, i i used to think that uh, patenting pharmaceuticals uh, especially using the the hit and miss and very expensive drug development uh, process uh, through which most of them are developed is not only justified but actually promotes uh, promotes innovation and there are some issues that we are aware of such as tweaking tweaking a chemical to justify extension of the patent um and uh, the lack of a functioning market for the obvious reasons that it's doctors who make the decisions not not the patients so there's no clear feedback on that side um also of course lobbying and maybe even bribing doctors and the issue of the FDA basically providing uh, providing cover uh, from liability or some cover from liability uh, of the pharmaceutical uh, firms so for instance with oxycodone and the claim that it was less addictive than other opiates um was backed up by the FDA and and sort of shielded them from the responsibility that they should take so we can talk about those but I'm also specifically interested in um new technologies and new ways of drug discovery um such as genetics or ai which might not involve the 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 huge hit and miss uh, process of testing thousands of different chemicals often without even knowing how they would work and only only discovering them in the process uh how patents apply how the existing system uh, applies and uh 
but they're still fit for purpose and given what uh, what is happening. So let me start uh, with the, the pharmaceutical area. Um, Anders, as we discussed earlier, pads are supposed to last for a limited period of time. In the pharmaceutical context, after that, generic companies should enter the market and drive prices down. But that's not what's happening at the moment. Rather, drug companies pile new protections onto their drugs to extend the protection cliff. So I had a long-range study tracking every time a company extended the protection cliff on any drug in the market, and the results were, were stunning. Rather than creating new medicine, drug companies today are largely recycling and repurposing old ones. For example, across this entire long period, 78% of the drugs associated with new patents were not new drugs coming on the market. They were ones already on the market. In other words, we are lavishing rewards on existing drugs in a way that allows companies to extend their competition-free zones and raise prices um, unchallenged. There are certainly advantages to working with existing drugs. We have a track record to know what the side effects are. We know something about those those drugs. However, the amount of investment necessary to take an existing drug and adapt it to a new market or make a small change to it, for example, change it from a capsule to a tablet or something like that, that amount of investment is very small in comparison to the original innovation. And companies should be able to get their reward in the market for small changes. It is the major innovations that the patent system should be rewarding. And we've, we've gotten diverted into creating rewards for essentially minor tinkering, for minor modifications. The result is that our reward system also pushes companies into that type of innovation. We, we channel their activities into the rewards that we're offering, and so um, we waste creative resources, and essentially we push companies to, to waste their creative resources. That's, that's the problem happening within a pharmaceutical innovation at the moment. You mentioned at the outset that vast dollars that are needed to bring a drug to market and the range of estimate for what it costs to research a new drug, to find it successfully, to bring it to market, the range of how much that costs um, varies widely. But what I'd like to say is it doesn't really matter. It's a lot. We can argue over whether it's vast or whether it's just very big, but it's a lot. It's very expensive um, drug innovation, and it fails many times. But we want to be really careful within this system of not incentivizing failure. So a patent is not a participation trophy. We don't give patents for the drugs that you tried and failed to produce. So we want to be very careful to make sure that the patent reward is tailored towards your successes, uh, not towards the failures. And that's a tricky thing within an innovative system. Yes, and indeed, I find uh, I find this issue mind-boggling, uh, as well, especially the the, the examples of uh, outright abuse and uh, and rent-seeking uh, that come up. And I think we'll get back to to, um, to to the issue of what is worthy of a patent and what is not. We know, of course, obviously that that you know changing a capsule should not be worthy of patent protection intuitively. But investing massively in exploring uh, in exploring different chemical compounds on a massive scale, of course, is something that is worthy of of uh, patent protection. Uh, I should ju- I should just um, I should clarify something here. The patent system doesn't care how much you invest in innovation. The patent system only cares about how much you contribute to society's knowledge. Have you been successful and have you been successful enough 
that your innovation is worthy of 20 years of patent protection. Um, now, it's important to remember that by the time a drug gets to market, uh, companies don't necessarily have 20 years left because they tend to patent early in the system and there's much more left to go. But the same concept applies. It's not how much you invent. It's how valuable your contribution is to society. That's where the innovation incentive lies. Yes, definitely, or or should lie, but but doesn't always lie, as, <laughs> yes. as you point out. Um, I, I will not. We could we could talk about this topic alone for hours, uh, but I wanted to to switch to a related one, which is patenting software. Yes. Um, if you look at hardware and electronics, it's already overwhelming. Anytime you want to build even something relatively simple, you may infringe on thousands of different patents. Um, and you don't have an overview of it, which, of course, is a massive disincentive. But for software, I'm not even sure where to start. We heard about the patenting of the one-click uh, famously. But help us understand what is, how do you even do it? What is patentable in the first place? It can't be the coding. Um, it can't be many of the functions that mostly replicate things that were being done uh, by humans or in other ways before. So. What can we actually patent at all in software, and how do we go about that, and where is it useful? Software is a strange beast to try to harness within the patent system, and the patent system has tried to create analogies to mechanical inventions, to other types of inventions, but it's an uncomfortable fit. The way I try to think about software or any type of algorithms is to say that these are simply languages. They are ways of saying something in a different way. And like any language, you may be saying something that is perfectly obvious, or you may be saying something that is um, mind-blowingly creative. And so you have to think about within the software, um, what does it represent? Does it represent something that is a major innovation over what we already know and can do within a computer system? Or is it not? And we can't simply get hung up on, is it captured by a, by an algorithm or is it a bit of software. The question is, what 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 does it really do? The U.S. patent system, in in particular, got lost in the forest with software for a long time, protecting just about everything out there, including uh, Anders, what you referenced, which is um, the the one-click patent, uh, you know, the shopping patent. We we um, had a period of time in which. Uh, all you had to do to get a software patent is essentially to say, take this idea, do it on a computer with no information on how you might do it on a computer, and that received a patent. Um, the United States Supreme Court in the United States cut back on this type of patenting, but companies in the courts have been, again, pushing back, trying to find space for software and for expanding the protection of software. The real problem with software is it's a bad fit with the timeline of the patent system. Patents last for 20 years. Software becomes obsolete in the blink of an eye. And having all of these patents hanging out there for a long period of time and hampering innovation is essentially a problem with an industry that doesn't move at the same speed. Yes, obviously, that, that was also one of the, the, the follow-up questions that I wanted, uh, that I wanted to ask you. Um, could you give us a picture of where patenting software is both possible and, and, and useful? From my layman's per perspective, I see that almost no mobile apps have patent protection. Uh, Facebook and Google are operating all over the world, and even if they have a patent in the U.S., it wouldn't apply. It wouldn't apply anywhere else, or doesn't seem to be much of a much of a concern. Where should it be a concern that can be fixed with something like the current system that we have? I can't tell you as much about the patents in the international system 
as I can about how they are playing out in the U.S. system. I can tell you that many things happen in software without patents. There is one very famous study uh, done by a professor, Pam Samuelson at Berkeley, and a group of co-authors looked at where are software patents most valuable, and they concluded that their most important role is in um, attracting venture capital funds. They were simply in a, a marker that the company had something, but that's about all that they did. Uh, so the the industry does seem to operate in many ways outside of what the patent system intended. Uh, that should be a cautionary tale for all of us. Yes, definitely. And we also had an episode on exactly the phenomenon we call signaling, uh, which is what happens when you need a patent to be valuable, to potential to signal to venture capital companies, uh, just like having a degree from, from Harvard sends a strong signal, even if it was in an unrelated area. Um, these signals are, of course, unproductive, but also to, to some extent important. But in software, it's hard to see any productive use um, use at all for um, for patenting, or it's at any rate a system is not fit for purpose. But that's software. You've also done a lot of work on patenting AI, uh, which boggles my mind even more. Uh, what can you patent? What if uh, what if the AI finds a solution for you um, through machine learning? Um, who gets the patent and, and all of those issues? Could you give us an, an overview of how things get even more thorny? I do believe that AI is at an extraordinary turning point and one that will propel society to all types of changes and have, a, have an immeasurable impact on, on everything we do. It's an exciting time to watch innovation, but it's also um, an important time for thinking about how the things generated by AI fit within the legal regimes that we have, because AI is a tremendously uncomfortable fit with the patent system and with other types of intellectual property rights. So let me give you just a, a few ways that, that AI fits uncomfortably within the patent system. One is the issue that you mentioned, um, which is if we were going to patent something created by an artificial intelligence system, who is the owner of that patent? Is it the person who uh, programmed the AI originally and created the AI program? Is it the person who put the queries into the AI? Or is it the AI itself? Or by extension, whatever company is licensing people to use their AI? Who's Who's the inventor here? And that's not a question that the current patent system is actually um, equipped to handle the way we think about it. Now, with the U.S. patent system and, and with uh, some of the patent systems that have looked at this question, we simply, at this point, don't patent uh, anything created through an AI system because of the way our systems are grounded and the language used to speak about human inventors. That's where we are now. There's much push to try to ask whether we have to think about these in different ways. Is AI simply a tool like a hammer that you pick up when you're building a machine so you can still patent the machine you get? Or is AI something entirely different we have to think about differently? Let me give you a few more thoughts in which AI-generated inventions don't fit comfortably within the patent system. The first is timeline. A 20-year patent is an eternity for AI. When it comes to the speed of change, AI travels in an entirely different dimension. The second problem is transparency, where the invention calls for a method patent. For example, a method of using an AI to determine when a car hits the brakes or whether an applicant will receive a loan. The limited disclosure norms 
in software patenting may not be enough for society. We really don't explain much about the software patent, what it's doing, and within AI, it's difficult to extract how it made its decisions. So to gain societal acceptance of AI, I believe policymakers and the public will want someone to look under the hood. That is not the way our software patenting system works right now. The third area of discomfort is what I call collective contribution to creativity. To some extent, AI systems are deriving their creative results in part through the creative decisions of numerous people. So can the AI's creativity be attributed solely to the program or its operator or the owner? Maybe it's all of those things. That type of collective contribution is not something that we think about or that we capture within the patent system very well. So let me give you a more concrete example. I'm going to stick with um, self-driving cars because I think that's the one that people are most familiar with with AI. But most people don't realize that that they are interacting with artificial intelligence and you know, all the time around them. Um, and, and not just because they're using ChatGPT to answer their essays or write their resumes. But um, so think about a self-driving car. The decision the car makes about when to hit the brakes is the result of much information culled from the decisions that drivers have made driving the beta versions of the AI or other types of information that the company has gleaned. That decision-making process is an accumulation of lots of information. Or think about Google's BARD or ChatGPT, these generative AI systems that are so remarkable and available to, to anyone who wants to use them. These systems are culling massive amounts of information from the internet, allowing you to combine them in different ways, and then allowing the program to combine them in different ways. Who is the owner of all of that information? Who is the creator? What is the creative force there? Where do we credit it? And where might we limit the reach of what we would give the one we credit? These are extraordinarily difficult questions. At the end of the day, my greatest concern with patenting and artificial intelligence is that we not get in the way. This is a time of incredible change and innovation in a field. If we lock up large swaths of the field for the first movers, we may not get the type of creativity and blossoming that we would like as other players enter the field. Yes, but one one of the things I'd like to I'd like to repeat, and it doesn't only apply in medicine, is first do no harm, which <laughs> we don't observe very much. We see quite a bit of very um, strenuous precautionary uh, regulation of of, uh, of AI here in Europe. That's very likely to to stifle uh, quite a bit of innovation and also entrench the position of of incumbents because of cost of compliance. Uh, it's a tremendously bad fit, and we have to remember that AI is basically pretty simple. It's a combination of massive uh, massive computing power to, to detect patterns and the ability to, to learn from previous experience of what we call machine learning. Um, that is actually relatively simple. The, the, the creativity that is needed is testing in exactly which areas it can be helpful, which we don't know and are 99% of the time wrong about. But it's very hard to see, also given the time frame, how anything could be patentable. Or do you see any exceptions? I was thinking for a minute, Anders, about what what you were saying. If you think about the new generative AI systems and artificial intelligence systems in general, uh, to cite Richard Feynman's famous analogies, computers are little more than very fast, very stupid filing systems. Um, it, it's hard to see that in the current environment when ChatGPT can write your essay and Bard can debug your code. But as Richard Sutton explains so beautifully in a piece called The, the Bitter Lesson, the, the major breakthroughs in AI 
including the natural language processing we're seeing now, can be traced to leaps in computing power and the amount of data available. It's these things, not necessarily the brilliance of the human mind, that have led to the breathtaking changes we see around us. And as with all periods of profound change, one should try not to be the fool who rushes in. I had to slide that in as long as we're quoting Shakespeare throughout today's uh, conversation. No, perfect. I I, uh, I love liter- working in literary quotes and to, to kind of liven up, liven up things and illustrate them. And I definitely think that intelligence is not the right word. Um, this is basically computing power, computing power at work. Uh, the, the innovation, the innovation is basically how you apply it and in, in, uh, and in which areas. And I think, uh, um, uh, Elon Musk famously said that 90% of the things that he thought could be automated ended up not being able to be automated. Mm. Only 10%. And then a few things that he, that he didn't expect. And, uh, there's something called the Marathchitz paradox that we, we talked about in the previous episode, which is basically that computers can be very good at complex things. They can be completely incapable of very simple things uh, that require some human some human intuition and things that the computer is simply not able to understand. And it's hard to predict where the limits exactly go, and it's often surprising. So this is obviously not the time to start to start regulating or to start protecting patents, we have to see how it how it plays out. Any other um, any other issues about uh, new technologies and new developments that you want to touch upon? I, you 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 talked at one point, I think, about um, patenting life or patenting sheep or <laughs> some out there examples. Maybe just one or two more to um, to finish off, and then we'll head to your recommendations for reform. The United States patent system has been more expansive in granting certain types of patents than, for example, the European system. So the United States has reached farther in terms of patenting life, and that is patenting uh, a creature that was genetically altered, or in patenting the components of life uh, that is um genes, proteins, and other types of things. I want to be clear when I talk about this that the U.S. patent system is quite clear that one cannot patent human beings. There was a uh, there was an op-ed at one point written by a very famous science fiction writer that, that terrified people by saying, someone else will own your body. Um, and that's not. In fact, the U.S. patent system explicitly does not allow that. Um, however, the the system did um, range much more broadly into patenting these areas than Europe did. The U.S. system, again, has uh, cut back in some areas. The Supreme Court cut back in those areas. But we still do patent more expansively. And as always, the question is, what part of this Innovation that you're talking about is simply nature or something that exists in nature. And what part of it is the creative act and an area that we believe would be positive for society to allow someone to control going forward? Again, I find these questions fascinating. I don't think we've always struck the balance right, but they are endlessly interesting. Yes, indeed, and I myself, in preparing for this for this interview, uh, which is on a topic that I know very little about, uh, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know and how many new questions um, new, new questions come up. And then after a while, I realize that even there's no obvious answer to them, and uh, and many thing many things go wrong. Um, so let's pass to the final part on reform. So I think we. You made the case for reform uh, abundantly clear uh, in in many different ways and in many different areas. Um, there's, there's there's massive abuse and there's not too much evidence that much of the patent system is actually functioning as it should, rather than rather than um, than create rent-seeking opportunities. Uh, so 
we all know the patent system have to be reformed. One of the things that struck me in this conversation is that I realize the problems, or at least most of the problems, or the overall problems, but I don't see any obvious solutions to many of this, uh, to many of these questions. How, no matter how you define something, there's always going to be unproductive activities that can fall within that definition, and it, there's always going to be scope for abuse. But you think we can reduce this. So talk a little bit about um, three main areas, or so three main avenues for reform that you find promising, uh, including perhaps the ones that you talk about in your in your book about reforming patent law. I should start by saying that that personally, I'm deeply committed to the patent system. Um, I, I believe patents are critical for incentivizing innovation and sharing that innovation with society. Uh, it, it's it's almost as if you know we can be critical of the things we love the most, and uh, I, I I believe strongly in the patent system, and I want it to thrive as it can at its best. So let me give you three areas in which I think we can do better within the patent system, and I believe we can foster innovation better than we are now. So I'll start with AI, since we, we were uh, talking about artificial intelligence and the works generated by artificial intelligence. I think AI-generated works can be protected. I don't think we have to say it's so difficult AI-generated works should remain unprotected. It, it, it's too hard to figure it out. The reason I say this is that the need to incentivize innovation and the threat of copying are as great for AI as they are for other inventions. The question is how to craft an incentive structure that would match appropriately uh, with the innovations that might otherwise language. language the question how to craft an innovation structure properly. So I, I believe there are some analogies we, we can take um, for AI-generated or co-invented inventions, ones that fall outside current protection, I think we could create a limited right modeled somewhat after FDA regulatory rights in the, the clinical, clinical trial space. So in, in that space, the inventor receives a short period of protection. It's enforced through the context of regulatory approval, and it's in exchange for openness to the regulatory agency. You open what you have done to the regulatory agency, which examines it and declares it appropriately fit for society. In other words, I don't know enough to know whether this medicine that I'm taking is safe for me, but I trust the um, regulatory agencies to make the decision that it is. Similarly, we should be doing so, the same thing for AI-generated inventions. So your proposal is to, um, to find a way to protect um, AI-related innovation, but to do it more through regulatory approval uh, yes. than, uh, and, patent, and uh, patent protection. That's right. So right now, within the regulatory system, companies receive certain types of rights for their clinical trials in drugs, for the data related to the safety and efficacy of their, their drugs. They get a period of time in which all of that information is just theirs to use, and then a period of time in which other companies can use all of that data, generic companies, to show that their drug is also safe and effective. It's just a version of the original one. These are short periods of rights. They're not 20 years. They're a number of years instead, a small number of years. The brand drug gets this type of data right in exchange for um, giving all of that information to the FDA. So you have openness to a regulatory agency. I think we could do something similar for inventions that are AI generated or that one can think of as co-invented with the AI. There's some human input, but the AI um, cre does a great deal of the creation. What I'm suggesting is a system in which you have some right granted for a more limited time in exchange for the openness that we would not see now within the software patenting system. It would give society some comfort 
about the way AI is making its decisions and a window into regulating what's happening. So some some kind of protection, but also increased speed and not as strong a protection as you would have from uh, from uh, using patenting. When we were speaking about the problem with software patenting and AI uh, patenting in general, the problem is that the field changes so quickly. You grant a 20-year patent on an invention within a software or within an AI field, and the field has moved vastly beyond it quickly. So can we have a more limited right that fits the speed of change within the field better? Which manages to incentivize innovation in a way that's adapted to to the dynamics of the market and, and the technology. There are two other areas that I think we can focus on to make the patent system operate at its intended and maximum capacity. And one is the application of patent law needs to be reinforced to ensure that obvious patents stop proliferating, that patents aren't granted on small tinkering changes, and that we protect the truly innovative, but not the small and minor. There is plenty of room for work within that area. The third area is I believe competition laws need to be reformed to try to deal better with those fields in which patent law tends to play a largest role. So competition law today tends to be atomistic, deliberately focused on the trees, not the forests. It it pays attention to the consequence of individual acts alleged to be anti-competitive, not focusing on large number of acts put together. I believe that that focus is misplaced, and the result is that competition authorities can overlook troubling behaviors like companies snapping up large numbers of startups to be able to acquire um, the technologies and the patent rights and to um, uh, make sure that young challengers don't emerge, or bundling and volume strategies by pharmaceutical companies, um, that is, using the combined power of the patents around large number of drugs to try to influence pricing in the market. And finally, patent trolling, again, where it isn't the individual power of an individual patent that gives the non-practicing entity its power. It's the fact that the non-patenting entity is willing to throw an entire bag of patents at you and the cost is exorbitant. All of these types of behaviors could be better managed if competition authorities sharpen their tools to look at behavior as a whole rather than focusing on individual moments of behavior along the way. Robin, you made an excellent case for the problems that we need to address in the patent system, and you suggested some very creative solutions uh, for our for our hearers, and, and uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Any closing words or summarizing words that you would like to add from your end? I do think the patent system remains robust and important as an element of incentivizing the creation of new products and sharing them with society. But I do believe that those three avenues are important for us to think about, and that is, can we offer protection to AI-generated inventions through some type of more limited regulatory-related right in exchange for more openness? Can we limit better the patents that are being granted so that they're being granted not um, to obvious types of changes? And can we better harness competition laws so that we can see the combination of the activities that are going on. So we look not just necessarily at what is what is is big, but we look at the combined effects and harms of the behaviors that are are happening. I think those areas would considerably strengthen the the patent system that we have around us. Uh, That's that's an excellent summary. And I would add to that the principle again, do no harm. We can we can try things out, but 
there are trade-offs almost anything that we do and uh, unintended consequences, which we talk a lot about on, in the episodes. So I thank you very much for your insights and for um, taking your valuable time to uh, to talk to us and our listeners today. And uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to have this conversation with you.